Welcome to the Lean Health Tech Podcast, where industry professionals discuss trends and topics where efficiency, healthcare, and technology meet. My name is Taryn Shipley, and I'm your host. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Yolanda Smith, who was the Chief Nursing Officer at New York City Health and Hospitals when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Thanks for joining us, Yolanda. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Taryn. Today's topic is pandemic postmortem. So we're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how our healthcare system reacted, especially in a large city. So what were some of the first steps taken by the health system when the COVID-19 pandemic first started? Initially, the first steps that we took was establishing um, daily on-demand virtual system-wide incident command center calls with the executive leadership. So in our um, healthcare system, we have 11 acute care facilities, and I was responsible for community care branch of the healthcare system. So we initially began with those virtual command center calls. I also have facilitated a tabletop system-wide drill exercise whereby we were given an example, a scenario of 50 patients arriving to our emergency room departments, and uh, there was six inches of snow, and how would we as a healthcare system be able to manage those patients? So each of the 11 hospitals would have, say, 50 patients arriving, and it was a series of questions that we had to answer regarding how we would manage our staff, you know, what was the technical issues that we would introduce what was our communication plan if we had patients that needed to be emergently like discharged, transportation? So we had facilitated that in preparation. Initially, the hospitals had also discontinued visitation for family and friends. And we had to establish the non-essential healthcare workers that could work remotely. So those were the initial steps that we had taken. How far in advance were you guys preparing before you had to actually implement some of these emergency steps? So I would say in uh, New York, the pandemic initially hit. We started, I guess, in March, I would say, uh, these these steps. And then the first patient that we may have had may have been in to the end of March or April. So I think it happened pretty pretty swiftly. And did you end up using pretty much all of the emergency planning resources that you had put together? Yes, <laughs> those and and more. <laughs> so what metrics were monitored to determine the severity of the situation? So we had put together our emergency management dashboard. And on that dashboard, we were able to determine how many uh, available beds that we had, how many patients that were in the emergency room that were either COVID positive or exposed how many patients were potentially stable enough to be discharged from the hospital. We monitored the inpatient setting, the emergency room uh, setting, the number of ventilators that we had available in the event that uh, somebody was severe enough that needed to be intubated. We also monitored the severity report by the CDC and then uh, New York City governors. And we had a covert tracker where we were starting to monitor by zip code the number of positivity, and by borough, because we have in New York City, this five boroughs. Okay, so at what point were things at their absolute worst? Oh, at what point? I would say initially, April, May, the numbers were pretty low. In my facility, we had to incorporate or implement the COVID isolation hotel. And we opened up two hotels, like say in the month of April. And by August, uh, we had closed one of those hotels. We didn't even have, I think, 50 
people that were already, in, you know, staying there for isolation. And then the end of October, we had the biggest surge and the numbers just jumped dramatically during that time. So I would say that was one of the worst, you know, initially because we were not, I don't think anybody was really anticipating the number of people that would flood to the hospitals and then not having, you know, enough beds, being able to see which, like I said, patients were stable enough to be discharged. So what I was responsible for is overseeing the roving discharge team, which was a social worker, a nurse practitioner, and a clerical associate to see, you know, which patients that were in one of the 11 hospitals that could be discharged, but maybe not able to go home because it would be family members that uh, were not COVID positive. So they were transferred to our hotel to be able to continue their isolation there before they went home. So another area I think was a uh, worst was ha not having a sufficient amount of ventilators and then the clinical staff having to determine, you know, who's going to be intubated. I think that that was a moral injury distress on the clinical staff and then not having the sufficient amount of N95 protective personal equipment masks. I love that you used a nearby hotel. I think that's very innovative. That's an amazing solution that most people wouldn't think of. And I do have a question about that. I know in hospitals, they're built so they have negative pressure rooms. So if someone does have COVID, it won't circulate in the air. For hotels, they obviously don't have negative pressure rooms. So we had, once we had so let me just clarify one aspect. So when people came or individuals came to the hotel, it was voluntary. So you did not need a doctor's order to be able to uh, isolate in the hotel. We did have um, individuals that were COVID positive, And then we also had individuals that were under investigation. They didn't necessarily test positive yet. So we were able to separate them uh, by floor. And then we had very strict criteria for admission, you know, to the hotel. So you could not come to the hotel if you were on a CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure mask. You, um, there's certain things we did not allow in the hotel because as you stated, Taryn, with the negative pressure rooms, once they were in a regular hotel room, we had to insert in that that air was not now coming out of the, the room and now going into the hallway system. We did have a breach at least one time that I'm very familiar with where an individual did come with their CPAP. They had opened the windows. And so when you, that air now, when you open up the door, it automatically comes out into the hallway. We had to decompress that room. We had to put it out of commission for at least 24 hours. And there was a whole procedure or how that room was cleaned. Everybody that was uh, working on that floor had to be uh, tested to ensure that nobody became positive, and all the staff that were working in the hotels always wore their masks and, you know, appropriate PPE. Once, even though they knew that somebody was COVID positive, once they came to the room, they always had their their mask on. They had protective airway, uh, protective eyewear on, so they were constantly protecting themselves from, you know, those COVID positive individuals. And we also separated the elevator. So if somebody was now being admitted into the hotel, if you were COVID positive, you went up, you went in a separate elevator. And for those individuals that stayed, you know, for their 10 days, whatever the duration of that isolation, when they were discharged, they went down, say, in a clean elevator. They didn't go into the same elevator. 
how did food work? Did the hotel staff have to prepare food? And I guess food and staffing, did the hotel staff help or was it truly clinical staff? All the staff that we had were vendor staff. They were not employees of the healthcare uh, system. So we had to outsource with a vendor that prepared meals on site. And so there were certain uh, times during the day when uh, the meals were now delivered to the room. So they were came up on a cart and they were sat outside the, the individual's room. There would be a knock on the door and then the individual would take that container of food and, you know, they would be able to dispose of it within their room. We had EVS, environmental services that came and cleaned the rooms and cleaned on a regular basis. So once a person was discharged from the hotel, they would now decommission that room and then, uh, you know, do a terminal clean before another individual would now be admitted uh, to that. So we didn't have to have to do actual cooking or cleaning on site. Those were all vendor staff that provided those services. How does payment work for this? Did insurance cover this? Is this out of the patient's pocket? Did the New York City Health System chip in? This, this was from FEMA. So individuals did not have to pay to be there. The insurance did not have to pay. Uh, we had very specific coding that we did for individuals that stayed at the hotel so that we were able to get reimbursement from FEMA as a result of that. What role did technology play in the pandemic? I know that you mentioned one of the first steps was creating availability in virtual visits. How else did you leverage technology in this scenario? So in this scenario, we also had um, iPads that each that we had on the on the each of the floors of the hotel. So we had staff that did what was called wellness breaks. So for and we had different tiers of individuals that stayed at the hotel. So a tier one would be an individual that came that primarily had a chronic disease as their foundation versus a level a tier two would be an individual that was admit would would have been discharged from the hospital with a behavioral health condition as their primary diagnosis. So those individuals had wellness checks every two hours versus the tier one chronic disease had on-site well checks every four hours. So somebody would come to the door. They were also had pulse oximetry where they were able to check their oxygen saturation to ensure that they were okay. We did have protocols in place in the event that their numbers were below 90% or 94% would mean we would uh, now call 911 to have that person escorted to the hospital for further evaluation and management. We did not do that at the hotel. So we had iPads, we also had virtual visits from psychiatry for those individuals that had they were having challenges coping with being in isolation. And that was one of the main issues that we had because once the person was admitted to the hotel, they stayed in their room. They were not allowed, you know, we did not allow them to socialize. Um, they had a TV in their room. They only had their own cell phone. So they were able to communicate, you know, with family members, but they were not allowed to have visitors. So the only people that they actually saw was the the staff that was at the hotel. So looking back, when we were forced to use technology, are we using it better now that we kind of had to be shoved into using it at a higher rate? Yes, I would say, you know, prior to the pandemic hitting in 2020, um, getting telehealth off the ground was not an easy venture. You know, um, many staff or team members were skeptical about the use of telehealth. And I'm amazed when you think about it now, going back, say, two, three years when COVID first hit, people were told do not come out unless it was an absolute emergency. People were told to stay home and telehealth took off. I mean, within a week, 
all of our heart failure patients had a telehealth cardiology uh, visit. You know, a lot of those patients were monitored at home. And I think now that, you know, it's three years later when you see that what could be done if you really put your mind to it, you, you're able to take away all those barriers and think through clearly the workflows that are needed to implement these other types of measures that they can be done. So I think that the pandemic set the stage for implementing other measures in a quicker state than perhaps you may have done prior to the pandemic. Looking back, are there things healthcare systems should have done differently or better to handle the situation? I could just I could speak from my my organization, I think what we could have done better and looking back is the communication plan. When you think back of all the inf- the misinformation that was disseminated through the news and the media, and I think it just it just caused a lot more panic, you know, because some of the information that was being disseminated by the media was not accurate and many people did not know who to believe and who to trust. So I think really having those communication plans come out very soon after any type of emergency happens so that the staff are fully apprised as to what's happening, what the healthcare system is doing to protect them. These are the next steps that we're going to take. This is what you need to do, you know, to prepare yourself, you know, because many people were panicking that they would now potentially be exposed to COVID and now have to take that home, you know, not having initially, you know, when COVID first hit, we didn't know that you had to wear a mask. There was, that wasn't a mandate initially. So people may have been exposed sooner than later before we actually implemented wearing a face mask, you know, covering the face the social distancing, the six feet away. And then it came out that exposure to COVID would mean that you were in contact, physical contact with a person for at least 15 minutes, less than six feet. So that's considered exposure. So again, I think having accurate information disseminated and then keeping that that communication plan alive and updated on a regular basis to keep people apprised as to what's happening and what's the next steps and how they need to protect themselves as a result. Do you think the U.S. healthcare system as a whole is now better prepared for future pandemics? No. And I say that not that they're not prepared with internal policies. I think what has happened since then is we are in a major shortage of clinical staff. So we've lost so many staff, nurses due to COVID. We had the great resignation, you know, this tremendous amount of burnout, tremendous amounts of mental health issues that that manifested after COVID. I mean, if they were there before mass, I think the, the uh, COVID pandemic exacerbated that. And as a result, we've had so many staff leave. I mean, we just have a recent report that came out April of 2023 from the National Council for State Board of Nursing, which says that we lost 100,000 nurses that left during COVID. And they're anticipating another, say, 700,000 with the intent to leave by 2027. A lot of the school, the academic centers, the schools were unable to enroll a lot of nurses because they had a faculty shortage. So there's, you know, it's a vicious cycle of trying to get staff, retain those staff, looking at the mental health issues that impact them. So from that perspective, I think if we were to have a pandemic, say, a month from now, healthcare systems would have a challenge because right now they're having challenges meeting the demands with the current staff that they have, let alone having another pandemic that would hit them. Are there any other thoughts around the COVID-19 pandemic that you have that we haven't yet covered? 
Yeah, I think we didn't really cover, I mean, when I look back as to where we are, say, after the pandemic, as to prior, looking at the care delivery models that were implemented before are not really necessarily applicable now. And I do believe from a lean perspective, those workflows have to be reworked. They have to look at the current state of the staff that we have now, the technology that we have now, and removing those non-value added steps and really focusing on the mental health and uh, emotional professional well-being of staff. I recently uh, have created a, a program called Professional Well-Being in the Practice Environment, Wellness-Centered Nursing Leadership training and really to focus on those middle level managers that were really sandwiched between the frontline staff and then their leadership and how, you know, we've lost some of those frontline leaders and many leaders were ultimately promoted during the pandemic, but not necessarily having really good leadership skills. So I think that these are some key things that organization, healthcare organizations are focusing their attention on implementing well-being policies that may not have necessarily been there before and really creating programs that will address those issues so that in the event any other type of emergency or pandemic epidemic occurred, they would be in a better space to be able to help the staff that they currently have. You know, it's one thing to recruit staff, but also it's retaining the staff that you currently have so that you don't lose those staff. Thank you, Yolanda, for joining us and sharing your insight around the healthcare system's response to the COVID pandemic. This concludes today's Lean Health Tech podcast. If you're a listener and would like to hear a certain topic covered in future episodes, please let me know by leaving a review or comment. Thanks for joining and be sure to check out the next episode.